and welcome to the Crash Podcast, which is all about clinical radiology academics speaking honestly. I'm your host, Tom Termazai, consultant radiologist in Norwich and the Royal College of Radiologists 2020 Röntgen Professor. In this series, we talk to inspirational radiologists from across the UK at different stages of their career, all of whom are involved in academic radiology and research. From starting out as a trainee, all the way through to leading whole research programmes, we explore the motivations, the rewards, and the challenges of a career in academic radiology, and a little bit about the radiologists themselves. In this first episode, starting out, we talk to three trainees who have taken up academic radiology as a significant part of their training, exploring why they chose radiology as a career in the first place, what inspired them to get involved with research, and where they hope to be in 10 years' time. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Madhu Chetan, third-year trainee and academic clinical fellow in radiology at Oxford, Jim Zong, interventional radiology fellow at Leeds that has just recently finished his academic clinical fellowship and is now a Cancer Research UK clinical research fellow, and Amy Sharkey, second-year trainee and academic clinical fellow in radiology at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital in London. So Madhu, let's start with you. Um, tell us a little bit more about your background and how you came to be where you are today. Thanks, Tom. So um, my background is I went to medical school in Cambridge and then did my house jobs in Birmingham and came to radiology straight from my FY2 year. Um, and uh, yeah, I've always wanted to do radiology, really. I can I can remember sort of going back to fourth year of medical school and doing an SSC and finding it really interesting. Um, so I'm now in my SD3 year, which is the third and final year of my ACF in Oxford. Um, and my ACF has, has followed sort of two different threads throughout it. Firstly, some work on AI in thoracic imaging, particularly nodule characterization, and then and secondly, some, some work on ablation with high intensity focused ultrasound. I'm hoping to take the latter forwards in the future, and um, I'm also hoping to train in IR as a subspecialty in the future. Well, that's fantastic. Seems like you've managed to get through a whole range of things already throughout your training. So let's just find out, start off with a little bit more about yourself. So part of the CRASH podcast is undertaking the CRASH test. Now you can see no expenses spared. There are 16 questions that we've got here numbered from one to 16, um, just for the listeners so they can understand. Madhu, I'd like you to choose five questions in which there will be a simple question which I want you to answer quick fire and we'll do five of them and we'll go through them as quickly as we can. So would you like to choose the first question? Uh, number 12, please. Number 12, Disney Plus or Netflix? Netflix. Okay, choose another one. Uh, number seven, please. Seven. How many musical instruments do you play? Oh, zero. Very non-musical, unfortunately. Nice, nice. Next one. Number four, please. What's been your most embarrassing haircut? Um, I had a pudding basin when I was a child, which my mum did. <laughs> I don't mind her always, don't worry. <laughs> and next one. Number 16, please. Have you ever had an x-ray? No. And last one. Number nine, please. What's the worst thing that you've done to a sibling? Gosh, um, I've, I've definitely um, uh, sabotaged my siblings' homework before. That's probably the worst thing I've done. Um. Are you being honest now? That's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, great stuff. Okay, look, that, that's fantastic. So, okay, Jim, let's let's move on to you. Thanks so much for doing the, the, the crash test, uh, Madhu. Jim, tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to be where you are today. Thanks very much, Tom. So unlike Madhu, um, I, for most of my medical career, while I was in Edinburgh, uh, in my undergraduate, time wanted to be a surgeon apologies to all radiologists out there and this was because i went into medical school 
really interested in art and I thought plastic surgery was my destiny. And soon I realized that doing very extended long operations um, in the plastic surgery theater wasn't necessary for me. And during some electives that I did in plastic surgery, I met some very inspirational interventional radiologists who said to me, you really should consider this specialty because it is the next big thing. And sadly, as a naive medical student, I didn't believe them initially. And it took only the, the fifth year of medical school when I was on in elective in New York in America, when I wasn't given my first choice placement in plastic surgery, that I ended up doing my elective in interventional radiology, where this was the first time I was exposed to interventional oncology and really observed many exciting new innovative procedures in cancer therapy. And I think that was really what sealed the deal for me, deciding that interventional radiology was what I wanted to pursue. And during medical school in Edinburgh, I was exposed to research and I had some very good research mentors, not radiologists, surgeons, um, hepatologists were the ones who mentored me from the research side. But I did develop an interest in pursuing a part academic and clinical career. Being engaged with both sides, I thought, was, was what I wanted to do long term as well. And that's why I applied for a academic foundation post in my foundation jobs, which I took in the West Yorkshire area. And that gave me the dedicated time that I could then delve into research a bit more. And once I got my training number in Leeds, I've tried to continue that during my radiology training. Fantastic. So you're a bit of an arty person, you were saying? Yes. Yeah, so my parents are both artists. And despite them trying very hard to dissuade me from a career in art or design, I think it brushed off slightly. Yeah. It, it's interesting. I think um, I know a trainee plastic surgeon that is also a member of the Medical Artists Association and uh, phenomenal at art illustration and takes a lot of inspiration from their clinical work in that role. OK, right. So your turn to take the crash test. There are how many? David? So there must be uh, 11 squares left. So you're going to choose first one. Thanks. I'll go for one, please. One. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Knowing about all the exciting academic radiology endeavours I'll be going through that day. Now that definitely sounds honest, Jim. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, next one. I'll go for number 15. What are you terrible at? Sometimes I feel academic radiology and radiology. You can't give the same answer to everyone, Jim. You have to so, come up with something else. There are too many things to choose from, but immediately what comes to mind is tree cutting, which I've been doing a lot of recently. Okay, next one then. Go for 10, please. What's your signature dish you'd cook on a date? Roast chicken. Nice, roast chicken, excellent. So next. Three, please. Three. What keeps you awake at night? Unfortunately, I do drink a lot of coffee, so I think that, but occasionally all the unanswered and um, unfinished business I've probably left for several weeks from my you know, radiology or research side. And, and also occasionally at the moment, the NBA playoffs, which are happening in, in Florida, America, because my team who is still in the NBA um, has not played very well at the best of times. So that as well. So several so which, stresses. Which team is that? Uh, the Los Angeles Lakers. OK, nice. OK, so your last one, please. Six, please, Tom. I think I might know what this is, but what's your secret talent? I don't really think I have one, but I do spend a lot of time trying to be a better basketball player. OK, right. Well, look, thanks ever so much, Jim. Now, let's move on to our last panellist, 
Amy, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So I trained at Oxford, and this is going to be a very similar story to Jim, which I hope isn't too disappointing for your diversity statistics, wanted to be a plastic surgeon. I had an amazing plastic surgery mentor at Oxford who taught me a lot of the fundamentals of research and how to get papers published and all the key statistics stuff. And then I applied for a AFP, so an academic foundation post, which I did in London in surgery. So I did it in vascular surgery and through that realized the multiple benefits of interventional radiology. I then, I wasn't 100% sure about doing radiology versus doing surgery. I took a year out and I did the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management's National Clinical Directors Fellowship, which I did partly at Macmillan and partly at the Royal College of Radiologists, which I thought would be a good way to find some insight into how things might be. After that, I decided to do radiology. I wanted to do academic still. So I, having done the AFP at Guy's St. Thomas's, I am now back doing the radiology ACF at Guy's St. Thomas's. And that's how I've ended up here today. Excellent. Well, I mean, what's immediately obvious to me is that you all have, you know, very interesting backgrounds, clearly, you know, motivated individuals. Um, but Amy, how motivated are you to do the last bit of the crash test? Extremely. <laughs> Excellent. OK, so if you choose, we're going to choose um, five. Um, so what's your first number? Eleven, please. 11. Let's see what you've been left with at the bottom of the barrel. Glastonbury or Glindbourne? Glastonbury. Okay, next one. Uh, 14, please. What would you most like to change about yourself? Okay, that's getting a bit personal. Um, I'm a really appalling singer, and if I could improve one skill set, that would be it, because it comes up an awful lot, and I'm, like, shockingly bad. Oh, well, you're not going to like the singing section that I've got for you sets, um, lined up <laughs> later on. Okay. <laughs> karaoke so what's the next one uh two please what's your most annoying habit again getting personal with these ones i'm not very patient okay okay well, 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 well wait next one <laughs> there you go. uh five please how many times did you fail your driving test zero. First time man nice i'm gonna i want to ask everyone else this maddie <laughs> how many times also zero. First time too oh jim also zero, but I don't think you'll believe me now, Tom, after my previous answers. No, but, okay, Too look, many overachievers. My, my wife will really be unimpressed with this, but it was zero for me as well. So I think that's, that's it. That ends the podcast. That tells you everything that you need to know about it. <laughs> now you've got one more question, Amy. Go on. Uh, 13, please. Three o'clock T or G&T? G&T. G&T. Excellent. So, yeah, nice and easy there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that leaves one number eight and I suppose I had better do that one it's not really a surprise but I can't remember which one it is planes trains or automobiles I would get the worst one trains I think they're the best way to travel right that ends the crash test and the introductions thank you so much for playing let's now actually start talking about a little bit more seriously about academic careers. Amy, let's come back to you. Thanks so much for your introduction and the history involved with plastic surgery, Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management, so much going on there. But we are wanting to talk about radiology. And 
Was there anything in particular that attracted you to train in radiology? Yes, there were a few things. I wanted to do something that had at least a procedural element to it. So that ruled out quite a lot of the other potential specialities. And I am quite a visual person and I like diagnostics. So those were sort of the key things that attracted me. And then I suppose I'd be remiss to say I wasn't slightly attracted to the nice work-life balance that radiology offers. Okay, and which you then proceed by choosing an academic career to turn on its head. <laughs> with having to work through <laughs> every moment of the day of every Correct. night yeah okay yeah so and, and anyone else Madhu and, and Jim were, were there any other particular aspects of radiology for me I think it was it was the variety and the diversity it's, it's really cool how as a radiologist you can have every single organ system almost every pathology all the modalities anatomical imaging functional imaging procedures it just keeps it really varied and really interesting on a day-to-day -day basis yeah, and Jim, was there anything extra for yourself? To add to what Madhu was saying, for me initially it was that radiology I saw as an expanding specialty because it was driven by so many technological advancements. Obviously I was slightly biased towards interventional radiology because that was what I had been exposed to. But increasingly I do feel radiology, as a radiologist you are a doctor's doctor when other clinicians are sometimes struggling either with a diagnosis or they're just not sure about a patient. Radiology is sometimes seen as the person which helps direct them maybe towards the correct diagnosis for the cause of what the patient's presented with. And increasingly now, radiologists are there at the heart of the treatment side as well. So I think it's, it's such an important part of clinical medicine now, radiology, at the centre of the patient's management. So it's interesting. We have a number of factors here that seem to make radiology attractive. There's the technology which was certainly a huge thing for me I was also initially training as a surgeon but I had had it triggered at medical school by a fantastic uh, teacher and mentor in radiology called Basil Shepston sadly no longer with us he said yeah you should probably try thinking about being a radiologist and I went no, no, no I want to go and do surgery and save people's lives that way but yeah the, it was the technology through my physics background at, um, at, uh, at school that really attracted me but you know we do also have things like the work-life balance and the fact that it is a general workload that we can specialize down into as we progress through the careers which I think you know Jim for you I think a bit later on that's definitely something that you're you know taking big steps towards but both you know or actually all of you and I hadn't met you before we met you know we spoke for the first time apart from Madhu um, back when you were a medical student in Cambridge all want to do intervention and I think that is something that's really interesting about radiology because as a musculoskeletal radiologist myself I do a lot of intervention and you know maybe we can talk about that a little bit about how that interplays with research but because of the way the NIHR integrated academic training works you found yourselves some of you in an academic foundation program but we have these posts called academic clinical fellowships some supported by the NIHR some supported by local funds Madhu can I come back to you and say ask you why was it that you chose an ACF post was it something that you moved immediately into or had you already been in a little bit of your training then decided that you wanted to do that? Like Jim and Amy I'd done an academic foundation program before I came to my ACF um, and that was actually in diabetes and endocrinology and at, at the time I always thought I was going to do radiology but the the alternative for me would have been core medical training um, and I, I came out of that knowing that I absolutely loved research and wanted it to be a part of my life and that I absolutely hated diabetes and endocrinology and definitely did not want to do that. 
Um, so I think for me, the, the biggest reason I took up the ACF was so that I'd carry on having the, the time and the funding and the resource and the support to carry on doing research. Um, and, and I do really enjoy having that balance of, of the clinical work, which is really fast paced, really rapidly gratifying. And then the academic work on the other side, which is um, much slower, takes longer, but it's really intellectually challenging and rewarding in its own ways. And they do complement each other really well. Um, and then the, the other thing that I would say in terms of why I did the ACF is it's really great to be able to work with your same research team over a long period of time, get to know your mentor and develop that relationship with them um, over a long period of time, particularly when you're in training and moving clinical teams really regularly. So for all of these reasons, the, the ACF has been brilliant for me. So I'm going to pick up on something that you said there, which was a mentor and having someone that you could work with, look up to, discuss things with, maybe outside of the standard uh, clinical training pathway. And yes, we have our educational supervisors in radiology and they provide uh, an enormously important support. How did you find a mentor, Madhu? And uh, who was that, if you wanted to? you know name names and um, um, what has that been relation that relationship been like for you so it's it's been kind of um in some ways quite ad hoc so I've, I was assigned a mentor when I started um who was the the professor in, in our department and he's been a mentor to me in all of my AI work particularly in thoracic imaging which is where his interests lie um, and and now particularly as I'm sort of slightly moving away toward from that more towards um, ablation and interventional um, radiology as a subspecialty he's become rather than a direct supervisor more someone who I can ask for advice and um, who can help direct and shape my career in the future um, and then I guess other I'm not sure if mentor is quite the right right word, but other people that I've really looked up to are, are senior registrars at Oxford who've gone the same way before me, who are now approaching the end of their training, coming up towards CCT, having done their PhDs, and they've also been a great source of advice for me. I think that it's from my personal experience, it's important to add that I think a mentor could come from anywhere, as you're sort of hinting, um, and my mentor wasn't a radiologist, um, was rheumatologist in, in Cambridge, um, Ken Poole from the Metabolic Bone uh, Unit. And yeah, very much became a relationship which wasn't just about the research, it was about all kinds of different things. I'm just ask around, um, Jim, can I ask, uh, going back to the original question that I asked, asked Madhu, um, what was it in particular, because you, I think, chose a little later, uh, what was it that, led you towards applying for an ACF post? So prior to applying for radiology, I did consider the ACF post because they typically start at ST1 level for radiology ACFs, but there wasn't one available in West Yorkshire. So when I started radiology initially, I was full-time clinical, no academic time. I had academic interests, so I was involved with projects in the background, but the primary focus was the clinical day job. I think because I was still engaged with the research side in my first two years, an opportunity came up during the second year of my training where there was local funding, which would tag on to NIHR funding for an ACF post to start in the ST3 level, which I went for. And obviously the big advantages of the ACF for me were the dedicated research time that is protected. And research is really labor intensive, you know, to see projects out from data collection to publication, it is hard work. And I can't stress enough having 
the time to do it. You will burn out if you try to do two full-time academic and clinical careers. Even as a trainee, you sometimes just feel quite burnt out when you're managing so many balls. And with radiology, there are several exams which are very hard as well. And so lots of stressful factors. So that's something to consider. So you make a really good point about the time and you're almost sort of a bit of a giveaway. Now I look back, it's that it's almost like two jobs. But for people that aren't familiar with the structure of the ACF, it's supposed to be 25% academic time, 75% clinical time. But are you suggesting maybe those lines can be blurred in your life at work? How does that balance work for you, Jim? You're right, Tom. It sometimes feels that it's more than 25% time that you actually are dedicating to your academic time. It sometimes feels like you're managing two full-time jobs. And planning your academic time in advance is the key, I would say, from my past experience. And it's knowing that you, in your year when you plan ahead, you may have a certain rotation or a certain on-call schedule which fits better with having dedicated research time then. I think it's really important as well to have a constant dialogue with your academic supervisors because they will also know when there may be exciting projects approaching or grants or uh, funds that you can apply for. And again, it's targeting your research time to plan for those key milestones as well. So I think given that you've done your FRCR, is that correct, Jim? Yes, and, that's correct. Okay, and Madhu, what exam stage are you at? So I've got my 2A coming up uh, at the start of December. And Amy, what stage are you at? 2A is next December. Okay. So, you know, Jim, you have some retrospective on this. Uh, how did you practically, and you talked about discussions, engaging, and I think that could be key. Um, I personally did it after my exams. I started my entire research program afterwards. But Jim, give us an idea of how you balanced that that academic time with training and exams and revision and how you would turn to one arm of that and say look I need to take time away now and then turn back to the other one and say okay let's do this what was the kind of pattern that you sort of saw unfolding? First of all Tom I think the way I did it was not the best way to do it because I was the first cohort that sat the new format 2A so instead of the six modular exams one humongous exam with a ton of knowledge and reading to really undertake for that and I can't stress the the mount the size of the mountain that you have to climb to prepare for that exam as a result the lingering projects I had from ST2 that I was still involved with really took a a big chunk of time out from the time I should have probably spent really focusing down for my 2A prep I would say six months before your 2A exam, if you are an academic trainee, you really need to put your research work to the side because the, it's important to get through your exams ideally first time round because then that allows you to really delve into your research or focus on um, PhD grant applications after you do your part, uh, your part two. The 2B exam is much more clinically focused and the amount of knowledge you need will translate very nicely through from your 2A and it's more about practice of your exam technique for 2B and you will have an excellent background knowledge ready when you are doing your 2B so that's more about exam technique so I think Tom for the 
the two A's, it's really about setting aside time. So that is the main focus. And your supervisors who are radiologists are fully supportive of that. And when you are approaching those big exams, they will understand if you need to drop certain projects or even delegate or involve other people, because that's also a good way to involve other trainees so that they can then help you to help you know, achieve a greater goal if you want to aim for publications or presentations. Amy, I'm, I'm mindful we haven't um, come to ask you about why you chose um, an ACF post and was that right from the outset? And then we'll come back to a point that Jim just mentioned there and Madhu has already talked about. Yes, Tom, it was actually right from the outset. I'd done the AFP and really enjoyed having the protected research time and I felt like it made my clinical work more interesting to have some sort of research on the side because it's quite different skill sets and it uses, I felt like it used my brain in a different way that I quite liked. And I felt like the some of the research that I did was extremely interesting, whereas when I was, I'm sure everyone will have found when you're an F1 or an F2, some of your clinical work is quite repetitive. So it was from the outset, so I started ST1 with an academic post with the thought that I would have very protected research time as part of that. And sort of from the start of ST1, I have had protected research time that's been very good for getting things done in a time efficient way. So that research time, which is what I wanted to come back to, Amy, 25% of your job, how have you interleaved that with your training? Because it can, I understand it can be one block, it can be days a week. What have you decided your approach was going to be? So what I decided was to take one day a week off academia so I started ST1 taking it on Fridays. I think this podcast would be remiss without mentioning the recent global pandemic, which slightly threw my plans off. So I ended up finishing ST1 with quite a lot of academic time remaining because everything was thrown off by COVID. So what I'm going to do going forward into ST2 is I'm going to try and maintain one day a week. And then every now and again, whenever I know there's a big deadline coming up or a big amount of analysis or writing that needs to be done I'm going to take five days in a row so I can settle down to actually write something or do the analysis on something over the course of ST2. So I think this is a really important discussion point because in my full-time NHS job I do get given SPA time to do research and I have found that on and I'm not chasing huge project grants yet I'm having to build up my research train into a juggernaut bit by bit by bit. Um, I'm I'm finding that one day a week I can sort of survive and tick along. Two days a week I might start actually making progress, but if I get given a week, things really happen. And for me, choosing how to split that time and making sure that I don't get overwhelmed, because in my job I've got still got 25 years or so to go. I've, I, I I'm putting it to you that I think it will be a constant. Um, division that you're going to have to try and strive for and understanding how much time what the job is going to be ideal for me how much time is this going to give me for my research how much time is this going to give me for my clinical because Amy as you said I was really interested and I was wondering uh, Madhu Jim uh, Amy said that she uses a brain in a different way doing the research uh, Madhu is that something that you have experienced yourself yeah, ab absolutely. It's a completely different skill set. And I think without that research experience uh, and the, the time to put towards it, you don't really develop that style of thinking or 
those skills, whether it's writing up or stats or presenting. Um, so yeah, it's, it's completely different to your clinical work. But equally, I guess it feeds into making you a better clinician or at least a more questioning and inquisitive clinician. So that's another plus side of it. Jim, do you have any reflection on that about, you know, your brain being used differently for academic compared to clinical work? Yep. So I think throughout all my clinical training, and this may be for other medics as well, our day-to-day -day jobs are quite task focused and we get very good at managing small bite-sized bits of workload. But with academia, you are sometimes left to your own devices and that requires a bit of independence to organize your own time, to organize meetings yourself and to read around subjects yourself. There wouldn't necessarily be someone over your shoulder going, you need to do this, you need to do that. And I think that's what the academic time I've had has taught me a lot of. And it was a struggle initially because these are not skills or things which you necessarily get taught how to do. So it is a different way to, you know, organizing your day-to-day -day job and you know, different parts of your brain that you're utilizing. I think, uh, yeah, I think that opportunity to be let loose in almost an entirely new playground, to be able to, you know, develop these skills, you know, problem solve in a, a different way. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's certainly given, uh, research and academic work has certainly given that to me. But what is that going to be for you when you start out as a radiology trainee? You may, you know, you're overwhelmed to some extent by radiology itself. How on earth do you know what it is that you're going to end up researching? Madhu, can I ask you, was it something that naturally fell to you or did you look hard and almost have a sort of hand in glove fit to a topic that you felt that you wanted to pursue? So um, you're absolutely right. And I can definitely empathise with feeling completely overwhelmed with just all the newness of radiology and all the stuff that I had to learn in terms of clinical radiology, let alone the academic side of things. Um, there were so many different things that kind of factored into my decisions and I have sort of changed direction as well during my ACF. Um, but I guess that the first and most important as always is the question interesting and it, it needs to be interesting for, for me to sort of maintain the enthusiasm and, and keep going, um, especially when when I'm the one driving the project forwards. And, and like Jim said earlier, it's very sort of self-motivated. Unless you're interested, you're not going to drive it forwards. Um, I guess other really important um, features that have helped me make the decision are things like what sort of support is available around the project, who else is working on it, um, also support in terms of research nurses and research radiographers. Um, and it's it's always great when you have a team to bounce ideas off and, and to manage the workload. Um, and then another consideration, which is much more sort of practical and tangible, is, is the timescale of the project. Um, and it can be quite tricky, I think, to find the balance between a more long term project that really answers a question that you care about and you want answered, but that you need to go through sort of writing a protocol and getting ethics for versus a more short term project where there's already data available um, where you can sort of publish quite quickly, uh, which is great for research output, but maybe is less the burning question that you want to answer. I've found over the ACF that it's about balancing all of these considerations to then pick something. And having said all of that, um, sometimes you just take the, the opportunity that's available to you. So for example, during, during the pandemic, it was a case of when life gives you lemons, you go and do research on COVID. So um, yeah, it's, it's all, all of these different factors. And I wouldn't say that 
you get a natural hand and glove fit straight away. But actually that process of working out what's right for you, what factors matter at that time, tells you so much about yourself and what research you care about. So Maddo, I think you make a really good point about the projects are available to you in terms of uh, the projects you might want to do versus the projects that are right there in front of you. And that will have something to do with where you're training the people that are around you. But do you think that that has a big effect at the outset of your research career? Yes, I think that's completely true that you you don't necessarily go on to do um, as, as your long term project and your your career research ambition, what you start off doing. I, I don't think that's going to have a big impact in the future because a lot of these skills are so transferable and actually just having seen through a project in something related to radiology um, sort of teaches you the, the key troubleshooting points that you need to learn to get something off the ground off your own that you care about in the future. And also the, the, the other thing I would say is that um, doing a project that perhaps um, is driven by your centre or your mentor or your supervisor um, comes with lots of other benefits that you can ask other people for help and they, they can drive things forward when you hit a roadblock um, also comes with their funding which is which is excellent um, so so you have you have much more support do, doing um, doing the projects that, that they they're doing yeah you need to follow the money <laughs> yeah definitely Amy, can I come to you as someone that's ever so slightly earlier in their career and ask you about the kind of choices um, that you are going through about building that research career and the subject, the topic that you, you know, you're going to focus in on and what that might be? Yeah, um, I really agree with, just to follow up on Maddo's point, I think it's very difficult whenever you first start, whenever you have sort of passion projects of your own and then you realise you're too junior to actually follow them through in some ways. And in some ways, I started my ACF with quite discreet things that I wanted to do. And because my supervisor has been relatively flexible, a lot of what I've done in my first year has been based on my research questions that I wanted to do when I came in. So before I started the ACF post, I sort of had put in place a role for these to be done. And I think that it's very difficult if you need to do that, but also do, you know, what you're department and your group and your supervisor would like you to do at the same time particularly three years feels like a long time for an ACF but when you're only doing a 25 percent and it's sort of a part of your time is controlled by other people it's actually relatively hard to see something from start to fruition within that time period so what I've wanted to do in this uh, block so I said previously I worked part of the Royal College of Radiologists part with Macmillan and I wanted to do cancer-based projects which for radiology doesn't really rule very much out. So what I started doing this year was doing a bit about ionizing radiation dose in cancer and what I'm going to do going forward, which is sort of what I wanted to look at. What I'm going to do going forward is more in line with my department, which will look at sort of a bit of PET, a bit of PET-MR, a bit of AI and cancer, which will be driven primarily by other people that I'm going to help with, whereas I wanted a mixture of big projects that I could be involved with and smaller projects that I could lead on because I think you get quite different skill sets doing both of those things. Thanks Amy, thanks very much. Um, Jim, can I then ask on a similar vein here, um, one of the interesting things that you notice as you go on is that there's lots of imaging research out there but it's not all being done by radiologists and you yourself I think 
um, you know, you're interested in some prostate imaging, cancer imaging, is that correct? And have you found that that's, there's that kind of dynamic um, with who's leading the research? Yep, Tom, I'm glad you've raised that because when I first started my ACF, I had the opportunity to attend some local conferences organized for multidisciplinary academic trainees. And that was a great way to see at different stages of their academic training what local trainees were doing research-wise. And I was surprised slash shocked at how much um, radiology research was being done by non-radiologists. And this really highlighted to me the exciting aspects of radiology, which all clinical specialists are interested in. And the second point that you made, Tom, about who's leading this research is also an interesting question, because I do believe that good research comes from a collaborative approach. And for example, my current PhD topic is around prostate cancer treatment and how to personalize uh, retreatment of prostate cancer for better patient outcomes. And my lead supervisor on this project is actually a clinical oncologist, so not a radiologist, but it's a heavily imaging focused PhD. And therefore, there are so many skills a radiologist can bring to the floor, which will enhance this type of research. I think when you are in the academic sphere, use that opportunity to speak to clinicians about what they are doing and find common interests because you may be that bridge that links two different academic teams together. And building on what Madhu and Amy have said, I was led and guided by my mentors with their own research interests. And I think every project you take on, there are certain skills and um, extra piece of knowledge that you will gain, whether it's in AI or in imaging analysis or in programming. And those are transferable skills that when you come to apply for higher fellowships or grants, you have to maximize and you know write about these experiences. It's all about tying the story together. And again, when you are doing a PhD, use that time to speak to other clinicians. So that is going to potentially guide your next project or your next academic venture. Now, oh, thanks very much, Jim. Yeah, and I'll just drop in there that next episode will all be about individuals that have taken that step through their PhD and talking about transferable skills, the things that you develop, expected and unexpected, will be definitely something we're going to feature on, on our next episode. Let's go on to um, the practicalities. Given that you've just transitioned from your ACF fellowship and in a clinical post gym again, um, what steps did you have to take to set up your PhD? Towards the end of my ACF, Tom, that was when I really had to practically start planning which funding bodies I could apply for um, for PhD funding. And again, it it's really locally the guidance you receive from the radiology side and also any other academic mentors you may have in the region to determine what collaborative support you'll have. When you find a PhD, it's really important that the PhD supervisors can accommodate for that topic. And so the local expertise may, to some ways, limit what you can apply for, for a a PhD, for example. However, there are also opportunities to have supervisors from other centres. So do look a field as well and tap into any resources 
or contacts you have across the country. It's the best time, you know, to give yourself lots of planning time in advance to ask around, speak to trainees who are doing PhDs, who have done PhDs about what they've learned and who's been really supportive from their supervisory pool and really just get an idea of which centres are maybe doing research in the area that you are interested in. Clearly, you have to find the subject that you are passionate about, and that's probably the most important thing, because during your PhD, you are so engrossed in the area that you do have to have a strong interest there, because there will be times when it is really hard work, and you need to remember the greater objective at hand. But I think, again, just communication and speaking to lots of other trainees who've had similar experiences uh, is really important. I think you, you touch on uh, a phrase that I remember being repeated a lot, which was project, person, place. And there, I think there are two really interesting points to bring out here. And there's one, this is an opportunity to, without leaving your training scheme in any way, to go somewhere completely different and take that step towards a group which might be doing something more aligned with what your longer term interests might be. Um, but interestingly, I still put it to you that I think, and again, still early for me, the subject for your PhD might not in any way define what you are doing in the long term in academic radiology, in research. You know, it, it, it is all about the journey and the skills as well as the substance, I think, at that stage. Madhu, can I come to you and ask, are you thinking about this, given that the ACF remit is to move towards a higher degree such as a PhD. Have you taken steps? Have you had ideas? Have you been asking around like Jim has said? Uh, where are you with that? So the ACF is I think supposed to feed sort of straight into a PhD following from it and I think that works quite differently in radiology mostly because of the way that the FRCR exams are structured. So I've got exams this year and next year and I, I know that I'm in the final year of my ACF now but it wouldn't really be the right time for me to go out of programme at the end of the ACF um, and it's something that I've definitely given thought to but um, particularly over the last month or so um, I've just been so sort of bogged down with revision that it's it's not particularly escalated. I think the way that Jim has has approached it to, to go into a PhD a bit later on in his training after his FRCL would be the way that I could see myself doing it and unfortunately it would mean that I wouldn't have the protected time of the ACF to help prepare to to um, put in my applications and and apply to funding bodies etc Um I still think that at that time, at least, I'll have that certainty of my FRCR exams in the bag and my subspecialty choice. Um, so, so it would make more sense for me to do it a bit later on. I think you have hit the nail on the head. Um, so for all the interesting things, all the rewards that you can get out of undertaking this, we still have this spectre of the exam sitting in the middle of our training that I think poses a significant challenge to people in positions such as yourselves about how do I time this? Amy, can I bring you in on this? Have you looked ahead towards this and some decisions that you might have to make? Yes, I have looked ahead towards this to a reasonable degree as someone who thought they would do an ACF in surgery and go immediately into a PhD. Uh, I don't think it works with radiology, as Madhu says, in the same way at all. 
And I think that I don't know anyone that's gone through a radiology ACF and at the end of their third year just left to do a PhD at that point because it leaves you with one big exam outstanding and it doesn't make sense to take a three year gap at that point, to be perfectly honest. So I think that while you can use your ACF time to like think about where you'd want to apply or potentially, you know, get the grant application started to write, obviously the positions that are available each year and where you can go each year is slightly different. So I'm not even sure there's a huge amount of merit in perfecting your grant application with the thought that you're going to do it a year later. I mean, from my point of view, the way that I've looked at it is that after third year I'm going to finish my ACF and I won't go anywhere until I've passed the 2B exam so that could either be between fourth and fifth year or post fifth year which I think is actually more similar to what you did Tom but I think that's I don't think for radiology it makes sense to do it in the way that the NIHR pathway sort of describes so let me let me come in to on on two points there and be brazen after all we are you know, supposed to be clinical radiology academics speaking honestly. And I think I wanted to raise from my perspective that I think this is a challenge. And I'm along with uh, a colleague, we oversee the um, supervise the ACF program. And we can see this as a huge point of concern, disconcerting for trainees about, well, how am I going to get my exams? I, I kind of just want to do that. And just to pick up on the point you said, when you put it back to, to me, Amy, you're absolutely right. I did it after my exams. I sort of sat there for a year, powering through as much of the radiology as I could, starting to suddenly realise that I did actually want to use my brain in a different way and be challenged in a different way. But doing it after your exams sets a whole new um, uh, time bomb ticking off, which is towards your CCT and how you hover over that and what happens out on the other side. So, I mean is that the lesser of two evils? Uh, Jim, can I come come back to you on this and sort of ask, you know, you're more in that camp. I, I, I'll i be interested to know what you felt about, you know, safe, safety backdrops or, um, you know, going full head on into this and just worrying about it when it happens. Jim, what did you think? Thanks, Tom. I think that's a really important point. And I was very close to not doing a PhD because um, being in my ST5 training post, I was very close to the end of my training. In your last year, in fact, most training schemes wouldn't be too happy to let you go out of program, certainly to do a PhD, because inevitably in the three years, you won't be doing much clinical work and you will de-skill to some degree, particularly if you are doing heavy uh, interventional radiology, you know, several sessions of vascular intervention a week those are important skills that you do need to keep up but from a you have to think from a personal perspective and it's the academic development and the invaluable skills during your phd that you may not necessarily have the opportunity to do in a different um in a different environment you know if you were to go straight into a full-time nhs uh, consultant post it would be difficult to develop those skills i do believe and so don't let being towards the end of your training, I would say, deter you from looking for not just PhDs, but one year research opportunities. There are lots of one year uh, training fellowships, which are important to look at as well, you know, in the UK and abroad. So that's that's another important point to raise, Tom. I think that's right. I used a clinical training fellowship at the back of uh, my PhD, and it's funny, you're all interventional in mind and actually doing the interventional stuff 
I remembered very easily, reporting a plain radiograph was really tricky. Madhu, you had a comment you wanted to come on the back of Jim there. I just wanted to ask you, Jim, whether you, you'd given any thought to how you'd maintain your skills, particularly the procedural skills, while you're doing your PhD. Thanks, Madhu. So during my PhD, I'm doing about a day a week of a clinical work, and that predominantly will be intervention because I can do some of the diagnostic work retrospectively. I will you know, still do the odd CT on-course shift, but no formal regular on-call rotor that I'm being part of. So during my day a week of intervention, that will be a mixture of non-vascular and vascular intervention. But also the PhD is an opportunity to learn some new skills. So I actually never did a formal Euro radiology block. And now in Leeds, we are doing a lot of uh, TP biopsy work. So I'm hoping to learn and gain that skill during my PhD. Um, I would say the clinical work you do during your PhD, you can also focus towards your PhD work. There will always be a, a balance of managing your academic supervisors, um, expectations and also your clinical trainers expectations because your academic supervisors will want you to invest as much time as possible into your uh, academic work but you have to again keep up those skills knowing that you are ultimately still going to be a radiologist interventional radiologist at the end of that and can I also go back to the point that you made Tom about subject matter so one of the biggest struggles I had being a trainee interested in interventional radiology was that so many of the potential great projects you could do in IR would struggle to get funded, not because there aren't great supervisors out there, but because a lot of these funding bodies heavily bias against specialties with uh, fewer academics. So they see academics as people who have funded academic time, potentially with a university post. And that made me think that my PhD is not necessarily about becoming um, you know, the expert in this knowledge base, but it's the skill set that you will gain and apply to your own career. Because our specialty will change in 10 years and we will not know what are the areas of interest, potentially research-wise or clinically. But if you could understand a bit more about AI or programming, and then in the future as an interventional radiologist, you want to apply those skills or run clinical trials, then you have that base to do that. And it was a struggle when I was applying because I felt that there, were, there was no one I could approach from interventional radiology who could be my supervisor, my primary um, you know, academic mentor. But that, if anything, is an outcry that we are all on the right path and we should you know, stay strong and really just go for it because co collectively we will be able to help each other to, I think, achieve that goal. Thanks, Jim. Uh, Madhu, uh, have you thought of what you might like to make the topic for your uh, for a PhD in the future? Um, yeah, I have. So um, my colleague and I are setting up a sarcoma HIFU trial in Oxford at the moment, which is still in its early stages. We're just getting sort of trust R&D approval. And um, something similar to that, I think, would be would be brilliant because it would be a combination of um, you know, direct patient care, running a, a small phase one trial. Um, it would tie in with my IR interest. And you could also do a bit of basic science related to it, like the immunology of HIFU, which is really interesting. Um, and I think I think that would make a really sort of well-rounded 
PhD project um, and also something that would be supported by my local centre. Um, so that's kind of where my thoughts are going. But again, this would be quite a few years down the line for me, I think. And Amy, also uh, perhaps even further down the line for you, uh, is there anything that has you know, caught your fancy, anything that you think that you might want to spend three years doing all day and all night? Uh, in short, I don't think my plans are anywhere near as developed as uh, Mad is. I think this is also comes back a bit to like what's available at the time that suits you to do. So I think short of if you apply for the funding yourself and get it on the basis of your grant, it's going to be for me a bit dictated about what's available at the time that's in line with some of my interests rather than my specific question being answered. So that actually brings us to an interesting uh, question about how one might get PhD in terms of do you get the project funded or do you get the individual funded? Now, so for example, uh, my PhD was funded as an individual and I got to go, well, initially to um, do a laser radiochemistry and that didn't quite work out. Um, and I then did engineering and 3D image analysis and coding and all that kind of thing. Very different, but that was not defined even at the start of my PhD. So I think perhaps there isn't necessarily a rush if you are able to um, enter a program which is by candidate rather than by project. Now, what I'm saying is that there are many different ways of getting your foot into that, uh, the start of that uh, three years. Um, you may have one year of funding to start off with and you may need to seek the rest, but you may get a candidate, uh, a PhD as a candidate rather than as, as a topic. But I think there's a lot out there. So it's not necessarily a problem if you don't know what you want to do and uh, pretty much even if you don't quite start off the right way as i as i i had a small misstep you can still recover and you know find ways of making sure that you get a, a good three years uh, on the topic that you're finally going to have to defend at the end of it so i think you know, we've covered a lot of different things here today and for um, the three of you, again, different stages in your career, but there's a lot of the career ahead. Amy, can I come back to you and then just ask a really difficult question and say, where do you hope to be in 10 years time? So I still have four years of training left. I've just started ST2. So that's four years gone. Yep. PhD is going to be three more years. So that takes me up to seven years. So hopefully at that point, three years into a radiology junior consultant shared university post position is where I would ideally like to be in. Great. Let's ten not years put people off. You know, ten years time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're saying provided everything goes to plan. Yeah. I don't put people off by saying, look, it's it's a long slog. It's not. It, I, I, put, I think it is just a, a fan. You know, that sounds like a a really you know well well thought out plan uh, madhu yourself tell us what do you think 10 years um so similar to amy probably not quite as well thought out as her um i'd, I'd like to have done my subspecialty training and done my phd and hopefully end up in a teaching hospital and yeah hopefully a, a job where i can pursue my my academic interests still um, maybe making a move towards becoming a bit more independent in terms of funding, but that's as far as it goes. Um, Jim, yourself, 10 years time. Yeah, I think everyone really hopes that in 10 years I will have finally finished my training and I do also hope the same. Hopefully I will have finished my PhD and submitted that and as Badu said and Amy have mentioned, 
good hopefully using those skills I've gained and still doing academic radiology and perhaps having more ownership of our radiology research and maybe even working with Madhu and Amy on some you know interventional radiology research that would that's really a a greater goal I think of doing a PhD and really developing the IR academic infrastructure in the UK which I think is lacking compared to you know other countries um, maybe yeah, having but, a, a webinar with you Tom and talking yeah, well, about our experiences it's all started here yeah so you're gonna have to refer reference back to this and yet yeah, networking and collaborating I'm a huge fan of that let's uh, let's see what we can get from that so we're coming towards the end of our time and you know, it's been really interesting in hearing from three really inspirational individuals, Amy, Madhu and Jim, about what they have experienced so far and what the future might hold for them. And we, I think definitely we've got three leaders of the future, whether that be in radiology, interventional radiology, academic radiology. And I wish you all luck in your future careers. And if we get the opportunity, it would be really good to see where you are in a year's time. I don't know if you'd be interested in coming back and talking to us again. Yeah, of course. Yeah, sure. I'd love to speak to you again, Tom. Great. That's in. That's contracted. Brilliant. <laughs> so that's all we have time for for this episode. It's been a huge pleasure to have you all together to talk about everything that you've been through so far and what the future might also hold. And also, of course, for taking part in the crash test. I'd like to thank our guests once more, Madhu Chetan, Jim Zong and Amy Sharkey, Charlotte McKern at the Royal College of Radiologists events team and the college itself for supporting this podcast and Sue Mercer for her invaluable sound editing. You can find show notes at the RCR website where there are further details about this podcast and all our guests. And if you have any questions for the panel or myself about what we have discussed today or any other matters related to academic radiology, then you can email them to conf at rcr.ac.uk. That's conf, C-O-N-F, at rcr.ac.uk. We'll be releasing episode two next week when we find out what happens for the next wave of academic radiologists as they get underway. So join us then and every Wednesday up until the virtual RCR Research Day on Wednesday, the 18th of November, when our guests will come together for a live roundtable discussion and answer your questions. Finally, if you are a radiology trainee with an interest in research, whatever your background or your goals, find out about Radiant, which is the Radiology Academic Network for Trainees. Again, details on the RCR website and get yourself and your training scheme involved. So. I'm Tom Termazai. Until next time, stay safe.